0: Is it on now? <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. After those songs, I've got to take a little bit of uh, water to uh, uh, do... Those were some high-pitched songs, so some of them, that's okay. <clears throat> well, today, Lord willing, we will finish the book of Colossians... And I know I've got a little bit of a lengthy section. Some of you might be thinking, I just had three verses that we looked at last week, and really we're going to go all the way from 5 through 18. And, and yes, Lord willing, we will do that. We'll finish the book of Colossians. And then just a, a little heads up, next week and really through the rest of the summer, I, I want to look at some different psalms. And uh, I think that there will be some messages from the psalms that will encourage you, that will fill your hearts with joy and gladness, and just a, a few things to look forward to. But as we begin to finish up the book of Colossians, and really, uh, chapter 4, verses 2, all the way through 18, is Paul's salutation, his uh, conclusion of the letter. And I told you last week, there were a few conclusions that he had, very specific commands. And last week, we looked at that first one in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. That was the first thing, continue steadfastly in prayer. Let me just ask you, how was your prayer life this week? Were you steadfast in prayer? Were you praying for open doors? When you are uh, considering a friend to give the gospel to, where there's a wall. Did you pray for an open door and when there's a locked door? Did you pray for the door hinges to be broken off so that a clear message can go through? Let me encourage you, let me challenge you this week to spend that time in prayer. And I called you last week, and I'll say it again. Join me in praying for Montana Avenue Baptist Church to effectively reach and minister to 20 people people, 20 unsaved people to see them saved in the year 2020. Let's do that. Let's join hands together. Let's pray in the prayer meetings. We need to add that to the prayer list, okay? That we want to pray for 20 people to come to the Lord in the year 2020, and let's move forward as we steadfastly go to the Lord in prayer, asking him to save people, asking him to use yourself as the word of God is proclaimed that you will have a clear message. Well, the next one comes in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Let's take a second and just consider what this is. And I'll just say this. The Christian life throughout the New Testament, and Paul's words in particular, he refers to the Christian life as the walk. The Christian walk. I think we understand that figure of speech. It makes perfect sense. But let me just show you a couple places, particularly in the book of Ephesians, which is really it is a parallel book to the book of Colossians. In Ephesians, uh, chapters one through three, he called the, the the people there at Ephesus to, or I should say, he taught them the theology about their position in Christ. Christ did this. He called you. He elected you. And then he saved you by grace through faith. Well, then chapters 4, 5, and 6, the second half of the book, it is all about practicing your position. The Christians walk in Jesus Christ. Very similar to the layout of the outline of of Colossians. But in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A little bit later in chapter 4, verse 17 of Ephesians, Paul says, walk not like the Gentiles walk. You don't used to walk that way, but don't walk like them anymore. He's calling for a, a transition. Repentance is what the idea of it is. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says to walk in love. Christian, do you walk in love? It's all about the Christian's walk. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says it again. Walk as children of light. And then we come to chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. And this is the parallel text to ours in Colossians chapter 4. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Now, I I, I love this section, and it's because I get to use a word that I rarely use. It's kind of one of those words that's outlawed in our home, and yet when I see it in the Bible, I get to say the word here, okay? So if, if you actually keep looking on, it talks about unwise, being unwise. And then the next verse, verse 17, it says, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And so unwise and foolishness, what does that equate to? Stupidity, okay? Stupid, don't be stupid is what he's saying, but understand the will of the Lord. If you are a Christian, I am here calling you, don't be stupid. Walk in wisdom. Walk in the ways of the Lord. And let me tell you, you can know and understand the will of the Lord. God's will, first of all, declares to you, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. This is an evangelistic text. And so when we come to this text, we must apply it in principles of evangelism. And the first one, he says this, to redeem the time. Make sure that when you're walking, that you are redeeming the time. Now the ESV says it this way, make the best use of the time but quite literally it means to buy back the time that's the idea of redeeming paul uses that word in galatians 3:13. christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us christ redeemed us the call here is to redeem or to buy back the time so what does it look for you to redeem the time. What does it look like for you to buy back the time? Well, first of all, it requires us to look. It requires you to look for a moment to buy back, for a moment to redeem that particular time. And I'll just say this. Often, concerning evangelism, the best moments, the greatest moments where I have seen people come to the Lord, where I've heard testimonies of people coming to the Lord, were unplanned times. Let me just say this, at work, maybe there's an errand that you and a friend have to do for work, and and all of a sudden, for the very first time, you find yourself in a car riding with this friend of yours at work, and you have 10 minutes going from point A to point B, and there's some traffic on the road. And as you're thinking, well, we could talk about well, I was going to say the game, but there's no games that are going on right now, right? So you could talk about the COVID. You could talk about all these different things that are happening. You could talk about politics. I would refrain from doing that, but you know, you could talk about all sorts of things. But maybe the, the moment in the car, you realize maybe this is a moment that God has given to me so I could open up the conversation about Jesus Christ. And you buy back that time, 10 minutes with your coworker. Maybe it's talking at a, a break, and you find out as you're, you're, you're talking with this particular person, they're going through something big in their life, maybe an issue with their marriage or their kids, or maybe a family member has cancer, and, and they don't know how to deal with it and work through it, and, and you, you sit there and you realize, oh, maybe they could benefit at this moment, at this moment of crisis in their life, and you say something like, well, you know what? I went through a similar circumstance. It's not the same as yours, but I went through a similar circumstance when I lost one of my kids. Or when I found out that somebody had cancer. And, and I'll tell you what, we, we turn to Jesus. And I'll tell you what, Jesus is my only hope. And Jesus is your only hope for this particular circumstance, for this crisis in your life. Thank you, Luciana, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. She interacts with me. But you, you, you say something along, oh Lord, bless me, give me this opportunity to make the most and redeem the time for the sake of the Gospel. Look for those moments. Look for them in unexpected circumstances. Pray for those moments. Be continual, steadfast in your prayer that God will open the door. And redeem the time look for those moments. There, there's something else, too, and I, I, I want to be clear about this. Redeeming the time requires us to take risks, and it will cost. I, I've got a couple of examples, and I, I remember when I was in college, I was working up at Camp Pinewood, and, and our, our season for camp, but always began the last week of June. And when college ended at, at Corbin, it always ended, I think, the first week of May, right around Mother's Day, somewhere around there. And, and I would come home, and I would have almost two months, you know, about seven weeks, to, to do whatever I wanted. And usually, that first week, it's great to just do a whole lot of nothing, right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and then, well, after one week of doing nothing, I was like, well, i got to do something. And, better go get a job because I've got a few weeks before camp begins. And so I remember I was working at a Shopco warehouse. I was unloading a truck in Boise, right next to, um, what do they call it, the, the outlet mall. The What's that mall called? I think it's maybe it's the Boise outlet mall. Is that what it's called by the airport there? And, and I was unloading this truck, and it was probably... 125 degrees outside and inside the truck, it, it, was, it was just sweating and sweat, it, was, it was hot. And I just remember sitting there with this guy from South Carolina, and this man uh, was—he he, just—he felt the need to tell me his life story. And so it was kind of one of those funny things. And he was just talking to me. We had a good time. Uh, Oh, I've got some family that's in South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. And he was a Clemson fan. And he didn't appreciate that very much, but it gave us something to talk about. And he was telling me about his girlfriend, and she was pregnant, and all these different things. And every single sentence, he used a four-letter word. It was it was kind of interesting, and so I, you know, okay, you know that's that's the that, truck driver, right? You know, so we're emptying out his truck, and and finally he turns it to me. He says, "Well, what about you? What do you do?" And I said, "Well, I'm a college student right now." Oh, okay. What are you going to college for? I said, well, I'm 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 going to college, a Christian college in, in Salem, Oregon, and I'm studying to be a pastor. Ended the conversation. And I, I remember saying something to him of, well, well, wait, you were telling me about your girlfriend. Tell me a little bit more about her. What's your name? No, nah, never mind. Don't worry about it. And for the next 10 minutes or however long it was as we were in this sweltering heat unloading this truck, it was, it was really pretty quiet. I'd say something about football and we'd talk a little bit, but he wanted nothing to do with me. Now, here's the reality. Many times when you give the gospel... Maybe as simple and as innocent as it might be, it'll cost. And and, and I'm here to tell you, sometimes it will end the relationship. I've had it end the relationship with neighbors before. And that's a reality. My hope is that it will not end the relationship, but that it will open up the doors for a deeper and a more meaningful relationship where the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed, where his death and resurrection and the free gift of grace, eternal life, is given. But that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to proclaim in wisdom the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll just tell you, there are times to give the gospel, and there are times to work on cultivating that relationship to work the soil, if I could use the good soil illustration, right? There's times to pull weeds, get the thorns out of there so that you can plant the seed on good, fertile soil. But don't wait for forever to give the gospel. Don't wait. Make sure that a clear gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. But understand it will cost. Let me give you a couple of examples from the Bible. Where that example of of something costing or or looking for an opportunity takes place. In Luke chapter 21, uh, Jesus is, is explaining to his disciples that this is coming, this is what's going to happen. And I guess I didn't have these verses up, so sorry about that. Luke 21, verses 12 and 13. Luke 21, 12 and 13. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering up to, b- delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, Jesus is giving them... A clue, if you might, a warning that you are going to be arrested. You're going to be persecuted. But friends, this is your opportunity to bear witness. Take the opportunity. Look for the moment and don't miss it when it's in front of you. We see an example of this in Acts 24 and 25 when Paul had the chance to speak before Felix, before Festus, and before Agrippa. And eventually we learn in Philippians to the house of Caesar when he was arrested. Jesus' word came true. He looked for, he saw the opportunity, and he bought it back. He was in prison, and he bought it back. How did Jesus use this opportunity? Well, you remember in John 4, Jesus was on his way through the land, and he, he, he sees this woman who's at a well, and it's dry, and it's hot, and it's dusty, and Jesus is thirsty. So what does he do? He wants to go get a drink. But there's a cultural problem. There's a Samaritan woman who's at the well. And any good Jew would walk around and not talk to that Samaritan woman. And they would not bother touching that well. But Jesus broke all the social and cultural rules. And he walks up to the woman who's gathering water for herself. And he asks for a drink. And we see the cultural element here in verse 9 when the woman responds to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, a woman? <laughs> and I can just imagine Jesus being like, well, I'm thirsty, right? You know." No, he doesn't say that. But he goes on and he proclaims the gospel. He sees a moment, a strange moment from the eyes of the woman, but Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't worry about the social norms. He cares about the law of the Lord, the Old Testament. He cares about those things, but he doesn't care about social norms, and he's willing to break those because he's looking for a worshiper of God. God is looking for worshipers, and by the end of that conversation, Jesus had made a worshiper of God. She was concerned about the location of where she was supposed to worship at. But Jesus was concerned about the condition of the woman's heart, and he redeemed a moment so that he could find a worshiper of God. Let me give you a couple more. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, uh, Jesus, there, there was a moment and his disciples were like, no, 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 get, the, get rid of these kids. We don't want the kids surrounding Jesus. No, Jesus, let the children come to me. And he redeemed a moment in time. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus was on his way up to Jerusalem. He was going there to die. And just imagine this huge crowd following Jesus as he's on his way up to Jerusalem. And, and they're excited. They know something is different about this. And he's walking through Jericho and this blind beggar, named Bartimaeus, cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me! And what does Jesus do? He says, no, don't bother me. I'm on my way to fulfill my life's goal and mission and the task that God has appointed for me. No, he stops. And he calls the blind beggar and he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to see. And Jesus redeems the time He buys back that moment for the glory of God and he heals the man and the man gives glory to God. Now, your situation is going to be different than Jesus's because Jesus healed the blind man and let's be fair, most likely you're not going to heal the blind man. And yet, it was out of compassion that Jesus took notice of the blind man and heard him calling and he took compassion and he bought back the moment. You can take compassion, give compassion, show compassion, and love your neighbor, and redeem that moment in time. Maybe one more. This is from Acts chapter sixteen, verse twenty-five, and you remember the story: Paul and Silas. They were. Uh, they were. Well, on the the second missionary journey there in Acts chapter 16, uh, they lead a woman to the Lord, they're excited, good things are happening, and this slave girl comes along, and she says, these men are followers of Jesus, Son of the Most High God, and and she says this again and again, hour after hour, day after day. That would get old, and so finally Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of the girl, and this demon-possessed girl, this demon-possessed slave girl, is freed from the bondage, but her owner, her slave owner, is not impressed with this. And he has Paul and Silas thrown into prison in this jail in Philippi. And I'll tell you what, if I was there, I would have been moping around, Lord, I'm preaching your good news, and I just get thrown into jail. What are you doing? You don't care about me. It's not what Paul did. In, in, in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says this, about midnight... Late the night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And get this last phrase here and the prisoners were listening to them. What would you do if you were thrown in prison for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ? Paul and Silas were there and they realized hey, people are listening. Let's show them what the Christian life is all about. How Jesus gives us joy, even when we're in prison. We've been called to suffer for his name's sake. Let's rejoice. And what does he do? He buys back the moment. He redeems the time. An earthquake happens. The jail doors are opened. and The jailer is ready to kill himself. Paul and Silas say, no, don't do it. We're still here. The jailer brings a light in. And he looks at Paul and Silas and says, what should I do to be saved? And you remember Acts 16.31 believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He redeemed the moment from prison. Walk in wisdom, friends. The first way to do that is by redeeming the moment, redeeming the time. The second way, is through gracious speech. Look with me again at verse 6. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. And don't worry, that'll be, that was just one verse, but that was my longest point. So don't worry, I do expect to get all the way through verse 18 today, okay? Verse 6 Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. The first way to walk in wisdom toward outsiders is to redeem the time. The second way is to have gracious speech seasoned with salt. Now, again, the grace. Your job as a believer in Jesus Christ is to proclaim the gift that Jesus Christ offers and the hope that comes with Jesus Christ. And you might look at somebody, a friend at work, a coworker, a neighbor, somebody across the street, and you look at them, and you look at their life and all the things that they're involved in, and you say, wow, well, man, how are we going to deal with this thing? And, and they're going to have to do this, and what about this? That's not your business. Repentance is the job of the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit do His job. Your job is to proclaim the gift that Jesus offers, the gift of eternal life. Received by grace through faith. That's your job. That's all you need to be concerned with. A message of grace. But what about salt? What is Paul talking about when he says this? Let your speech always be gracious. I think we understand that part. But seasoned with salt. What what are you going after? And I thought it was funny. I got a text this week from somebody uh, who was just asking about a particular situation, a very specific thing that happened in their life, and, and they actually asked the question, how do I respond with grace seasoned with salt? And I thought, hey, they were listening to the message, okay, you know, all right, well, it might be different in every circumstance, but I, I had to step back and think, well, what exactly does this mean, seasoned with salt? And... Uh, let me just say it this way by asking the question, what does salt do? Why do we put salt on things? French fries, right? You, you dump lots and lots and lots of salt on there. And, and I think we all know it's because it, it, it adds flavor to it. Now, we meat, it preserves the meat, it has a whole bunch of things, but it adds flavor. That's the thing we want. It, uh, potato chips, uh, uh, those cashews that they sell at, at Costco, you know what I'm talking about? and it, it, They're good. They're, they're covered in salt. That's why it adds flavor to it. But you know what it does? It makes us thirsty when we start to have all the salt. And, and maybe if I could just put it this way. Words of grace seasoned with salt should make somebody thirsty for Jesus. Do your words make somebody thirsty for Jesus? I, I think I can show this in a couple of places uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, two of these. Let's see if I have these verses up here. Oh, grace and season with Saul. Okay, Luke 14. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Luke 14. And I'm going to read verses 33 to 35. But Jesus is talking about the cost, the cost of being a disciple. And he says this in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So, therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34, salt is good. What? Jesus, you're talking about the cost of being a disciple. You've got to renounce everything in order to follow. or I've got to renounce everything to follow you, Jesus. Salt is good? What are you talking about? Anybody else have trouble following that logic? Well, we keep reading, and I think he helps us to understand this. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In this passage, Jesus is calling us to hold on loosely to our worldly possessions. And what is the result of that? When we hold on loosely, when things are taken from us and we still have the joy of Jesus Christ, when we live in certain ways that show the world how great and how satisfying Jesus is, they look at our lives and it makes them thirsty for Christ. And they ask the question, what's what's he got? that satisfies him, that fills his heart with joy in such a way, even when cancer comes along, that even when a family member dies, even in the midst of these terrible circumstances, what is it that motivates them? And they ask questions. What about this? In Matthew 5, this is probably the most well-known one, Matthew 5, verses 11 through 13. And I just want you to know, again, the context is persecution. Persecution. And he says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. Again, what does it do? What does saltiness do? It makes somebody thirsty for Christ. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be salt? how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Blessed are you when others persecute you. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because you're the salt of the earth and it's in the midst of that persecution that you get to see, help others see that they are thirsty for Jesus Christ. In the context of evangelism, Let your words be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that others will be thirsty for Jesus Christ. When you redeem the time, by speaking words of grace with salt, people begin begin to ask questions. And that brings us to the last part of verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your words be seasoned with salt so that they ask the question. And when the question comes, you're ready to give an answer. Maybe a, another parallel text might be 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. Again, speaking in a context of suffering, but suffering for the sake of righteousness. Suffering because you did something right. And you're suffering because of that. Peter says but in your hearts. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let me me just say this. You're in a conversation with somebody, maybe a neighbor, and the conversation opens the door for evangelism. You talk about Jesus Christ and, and what he's done. And somebody asks, well, how is it that you put your hope in God? Tell him what Christ has done in your life. You shouldn't have to go back and think, now what did this theology book say about this thing? What did Josh McDowell, how did he coach me to do this? No, talk about what Christ has done. How he's transformed you into the image of Jesus Christ. How he's called you to repentance, to live for him. And how he's changed your heart. Tell him just the story of your life. Give him your testimony. That's the hope. And that's the reason for your hope. Well, Paul goes from walking in wisdom, and he really brings the the salutation. I'm just going to call this the fullness of fellowship. Now, when I first read this, um, I read names like Tychus, I read names like Mark and Luke and Onesimus, Aristarchus, I'm not even sure I'm saying a lot of these names right, Uh, Jesus who is called Justice, and to you they're all just names and really to me they're all just names. Maybe a few of them ring out just a little bit, but I, I think what Paul is going after here is the idea of the fullness of fellowship within the church. And he's calling them to participate, and in fact, he himself is participating in the fullness of fellowship. Now, many of you guys know, I grew up in Boise, I I went to Lake Hazel Baptist Church there, I spent my whole life from when I was, I don't know, 11 months old, 12 months old, something like that, and we went right away to Lake Hazel Baptist Church, my mom and dad knew some friends that were there, I, 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 I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed there. I, I grew up, there were a, a whole bunch of boys that I grew up with. And, and I could tell you uh, about uh, my friend Micah Durham. And we went to middle school together. I'm in middle school. And I could tell you about Matt Basinger and, and Matt Parker and, and David Gerber and, and uh, let's see, Alan Ryman. Alan Ryman's working at a camp right now in, in Washington. You know what? They're just names to you. You don't know anything about them. And in fact, they're about as connected as as these people that are in verses 7 through 18 that Paul mentions. We, we hardly know anything about these. And in fact, I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I was... Uh, trying to get this ready, I actually wrote down all the names. There's ten names that are listed here. And I started to write on facts about them. i like, well, I don't know what to do with this text, so I'll just write down facts and I'll talk about who the people were and how God used them. And, and I think that could be useful, but I just thought, I don't, I don't know how to preach on names. That does nothing for me. And so as I really began to consider this, I thought, well, I list out, listed out names of people, and my heart is endeared to those guys that I just listed out to you. We grew together. We grew in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We were all saved together there at Lake Hazel Baptist Church. And because of that, whenever I see them, we're drawn together. We love each other. We care for each other. Because we participated in the fullness of fellowship together. I think that's what Paul wants us to do. Yes, we, we can look at this and say, pray for this guy, and, and you know this guy, he used to go to the church there with you, and, and, and we, all these things, those are great, and we can learn a lot of details about each one of them. But I want you to see his heart of affection and endeared to these people that he mentions, that he prays for, that he asks for prayer for, that he sends out, calling the people there at Colossae to receive them well. Because He loves them. He's worked with them. He cares for them. And the same is true of us here at Montana Avenue Baptist Church. We are drawn together. We are a family. We come together and we love one another. We care for one another. We pray for each other. And for the rest of our lives, we will be drawn together. Why? Because we've grown in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ together in the fullness of of fellowship and that's what we should look for. We should celebrate when we come together and if I could just say this, I have a couple principles that I wanna draw out from from what we see here and it may not be so obvious, I'll be honest, I'm reading a little bit between the lines and yet I think you'll see the same things here with me and the first thing I wanna draw attention to is that fellowship crosses racial and cultural barriers. Fellowship crosses racial and cultural barriers. You say, well, how do you see that? Well, the first way I see that is because three of the names which are mentioned here are Jewish, and the other seven names are Gentile. Remember when we looked at Jesus going to a Samaritan woman, and he broke all the cultural P's and Q's, right? He he did everything wrong. And yet, he redeemed that moment to find a worshiper of God. Well, right here in our text, we have three Jewish people who are mentioned with seven Gentile people. And they have unity. They come together. They're on the same team. And they've learned to love each other. They've learned to love each other. This is a big deal in the first century. Let me give you an example of how big of a deal it is. I already showed you John 4, but you remember in Galatians 2, and Paul's talking about the, the gospel, uh, salvation by grace, and, and he's proclaiming this grace to the Gentiles, and Peter's kind of there, and he's like, yeah, they're supposed to get the, 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 it's the good news for them too. It's salvation by grace. And Peter's there alongside of Paul. But then his Jewish friends show up. And what does he do? He puts aside the Gentiles. He doesn't care about them anymore. He only cares about, and he shows preference to the Jews. And what does Paul do? He comes undone. He is angry. Peter, I cannot believe you're doing this. They are believers as well. We are unified together by the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or slave owner. We are one. We are a family. You know what? We see that also with Onesimus. You guys remember Onesimus? He's mentioned in another book, the book of Philemon, which probably, we, don't, we just don't spend a lot of time in the book of Philemon. But Philemon was a slave owner. And Onesimus was a slave. Well, Onesimus ran away. Paul found him. He got saved. And Paul realizes, oh, wait a minute. We've got a problem here. And he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, but he hands him a letter. Of course, that letter is the, well, it's the book of Philemon, the epistle. And in the letter... Paul kind of butters him up, right? He says, oh, you're this wonderful, great Christian. I'm so glad of the work that God has done in you. This is fantastic. This is great. Oh, by the way, Onesimus, your slave, he became a Christian. He's your brother in Jesus Christ. Treat him like that. By the way, he's really useful to me. Could you send him back to me? I'm following the law, and I could do this. I could just, you know, set him free with my apostolic authority, but I don't want to do that. I want you to do that. He's your brother in Christ. Send him back because he's useful to me. Let's go. This is the gospel. Join the gospel ministry. And, of course, I think we can understand because he's mentioned here in Colossians as one who was ministering the gospel that Onesimus was set free. I think we can come to that conclusion. Next principle Everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a role to play in the gospel. Now those names that I read to you, probably out of those two names stuck out above all other names. They were Mark, the brother, uh, or excuse me, the cousin of Barnabas and Luke. And of course, we know these two characters because they have books in the Bible that bear their name, Mark and Luke, right? And um, man, that's, those are pillars of the faith. They laid it out there. We know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know all that took place in the ministry of Christ, partly because of Mark and partly because of Luke. Wow, that's great. You know what he also does? He mentions, in fact, the first name that he mentions there in verse 7 is Tychus. Well, who's Tychus? Let me just say this. He was the first century mailman. You know what he did? He delivered letters for Paul. That's what he did. And I'm here to tell you he's on the same level in participation in gospel ministry, in the fullness of fellowship, he is on the same level as Mark and Luke. Listen, whatever your role is in gospel ministry, in the ministry here at Montana Avenue Baptist Church, your role is very important. It is vitally important, and we need you to fulfill your role. Uh, There are many people in the church that have roles that everybody sees. And I'm here to tell you that there are many people who have a role that nobody else in the church knows about. And I want to say thank you for your participation in ministry. Now, when you sing up front, whether you're in the choir or in a small group, whatever it is, everybody sees you. I want to say thank you for your role in ministry. But did you know that there's people that take care of the flower beds? There's people that wash the windows. That's their job each week. Somebody comes in and they wash the kitchen. And and maybe we've had a little bit of a different uh, way that some of these things are done on a week-in and week-out basis over the last couple of months. But that is their role. And they see that very important. And I'm here to tell you, it is very important. We need everyone to fulfill whatever their role is. Because it's all part of our work together in gospel ministry, just like Tychus. You know, it mentions the name of a a woman. There's only one woman who is here. And I don't actually know how to pronounce her name, but Nympha, Nympha? I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. But you know what her role was? She hosted the church. Now think about that. Every week, Having the church come and meet in your home Sunday morning, everybody shows up. You'd have a lot to do to get ready each week. Um, a couple years ago, I was able to participate in Launchpad ministry. And if you don't know what Launchpad is, Launchpad is a—it's a Bible study. We go to Caldwell High School every single day of the school year, and we teach a class. It's about Uh, It's a Bible class. We open up the Bible and we teach the Word of God. I've gotten to participate in that. We used to have one at Caldwell and Valley View, and we didn't have a location for for Valley View. And so the Websters opened up their home. They live right across the street from Valley View High School. Of course, they go to Caldwell High School, and you can worry about the district alignment, and why in the world would they do that? That's a different story. But they opened up their home every single school day. I think they did it for four years so the kids could come in and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what that means with a a, a girl who's in high school and other girls in middle school and other girls in elementary school? That means you've got to have the house clean. The playroom that they let us use, they've got to have that clean every single day. Many times they would have cupcakes or bread or something like that for us. Coffee, they opened up their home to us and hospitality. They opened it up so that we could go there. Every day. You know what? We have fellowship together because of that openness. Because they opened their home. And it was vitally important. And it's great to see God working through the hearts of high school kids at a public school because someone opened up their home. Everyone has an has a role to play. Some people's role is very upfront and very visible. Other people's role is a little bit more behind the scenes, but it is equally important. Whether anybody knows what your role is, it is valid. Last, I want to say this. Oops. <clears throat> Everyone shares in gospel work. Everyone shares in gospel work. Work. And I want to use that word fellowship. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it tells us that the early church devoted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread together, and to prayer. Now the, apostle teachings, uh, te- the apostles' teachings, that's, that's this. That's the New Testament, right? Uh, that's the word of the apostles. It's the word of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. I think that's obvious. Fellowship we'll come back to in a second. But the, uh, the breaking of bread, I, okay, that, that's eating together. But I think very specifically it's communion. They're breaking bread, they're having fellowship through communion, through eating together. The last one, prayer. they spent a lot of time praying. You remember when Peter was in prison? they thought they were going to take peter's life and and they all come together in prayer for Peter and then Peter comes and he you know he knocks on the door. they open the door uh, Rhoda goes to the door, she hears Peter's voice, and she's so excited she doesn't open the door. she runs back and says, "Peter's here and everybody's like. No, he's not. Let's keep praying, right? Let's keep praying. for. No, Peter's here. And they finally go and they open the door and Peter comes on and is like, guys, I've been knocking out here for a long time. Hurry up and open the door, right? No, they spend time praying together. But what's fellowship? If, if you could just think about that for a second, what is fellowship? And, and I'll tell you what, the, the Greek word, I don't usually drop out Greek words, but it's koinonia. It's a word that we've used sometimes, koinonia, and it means to share in something. To share in something. And I'm here to tell you that's part of the fellowship. The fellowship, the fullness of fellowship together that we participate. We share in gospel ministry. Now, when I was a kid, if you asked me what fellowship is, I would have told you, because at the church I grew up in, we, we had this yellow, watered-down juice. It wasn't lemonade, because it was not strong enough to be lemonade, but it was this yellow juice, and we weren't allowed to have any other drink in the church, and I don't know why I'm, I'm a little bitter about it, okay? But we had this yellow drink, and it wasn't very good, but that's what we had. And then, you know, we had coffee, too, and coffee leaves a worse stain than punch. I mean, come on. No, uh, but we, we had this drink, and then we had, we'd have donuts sometimes, uh, very similar to what we do out here. We, we used to, usually we have donuts or cake or cookies or something like that, and, and, and uh, my thought was, well, fellowship is, is eating together, right? We have donuts or we have coffee, and we have this yellow drink that I don't really know what it was, and we'd have coffee, and then once a month we get together and we have fellowship with a potluck. Right? And that's, that's what fellowship is. That's what I thought it was. And I'll just say that that's part of it. That's a part of it. But fellowship is sharing in something. In this case, it's gospel ministry. The work of Jesus Christ, we share together. Sometimes we share together in suffering, but it's sharing together. Now let me just give you three quick ways of how we participate in this fellowship. Oh, and I didn't have those up there. Nuts, okay. Well, the first one is this, food. When we get together for Labor Day or for Easter, we have fellowship together, right? We get together, we get a giant plate of food, and we eat. Or we get a donut, or we get coffee, or we get whatever drinks that we have, and we we eat. The eating is not the fellowship. What's taking place while we eat is we're building relationships with one another. We find out about how each other's week went and how things are going at work and what's going on with family. But you know what, it doesn't end there. It should continue on to lunch throughout the week or or, or dinner or getting together for coffee at a coffee shop. And it's getting together on a regular basis. And yeah, we could say breaking bread together, eating together and enjoying life together. The second one is fun. Food and fun. You know what? Sometimes there is a responsibility to get together at the church and open the Word of God. And, and I'm just, I'll tell you what, every time we come together, We participate in the MABC, Meaningful Fellowship, Authentic Worship, Biblically-Based Teaching, and Christ-Centered Outreach. Every time we get together, we, we do something that revolves around those. But you know what? Sometimes... We have fun, too, right? We, we have fun playing softball, like beating up on all these other teams. We're not going to have a softball team this year, but, but it's still fun to play. It's fun to get together, to laugh at each other when we make a silly play, when we just go all out for it and the ball hits us in the forehead or something like that. Right? It's funny, all right? We have fun together. You know what? There is a place for getting together and playing video games, okay? Video games. Where's Nathan at? When we play... Uh, age of empires together, okay, that, that's fellowship, because we're building relationship. Christopher was telling me uh, he loves playing, I just asked him, and he, he loves playing, what is it, I forgot, Minecraft, Minecraft, you know what, you get together, it doesn't matter your age, and you play these games, it's fun, but it builds relationships When we get together and we do anything, when we have fun, whether it's watching a Boise State football game or the 49ers beat the Seattle Seahawks, we have fun together. Yes, I see those glares. Okay. All right, we have fun together. And of course, when we poke each other too, we have fun. But don't miss this last one. The food, the fun. I'm just going to call this the faith. Sometimes we have food and we have fellowship. We have fun, we have fellowship but we'll leave the most important aspect kind of just on the outskirt. When we get together, talk about your faith. Whether it's for breakfast or lunch or dinner, whether it's at a football game or playing video games, don't be afraid to talk about things real in life. Your faith. How many of you guys have heard the testimonies of other people in our congregation? You know what? That's an important thing to hear. How God saves somebody else. What about when you're struggling in life? When there's a problem at work and you don't know how to solve the problem, call somebody up and say, you know what? This is going on and I'm struggling and I think I might be fired. Could you please pray for me? That's what fellowship is. Or, or, or maybe it's something going on in the home. We've got a problem in our marriage. And I need help. And I don't know what to do. And you know what? Sometimes we don't do that because we're afraid of what they're going to think. I'm here to tell you they're struggling with the same things, just maybe not at the same time. We all struggle in our marriage. We all struggle with our family. We all struggle with our kids. We all struggle with our parents. We're all struggling with the same thing. Let's struggle together because that's what fellowship is. And it is our faith that draws us together. Our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that He's done which gives us hope. And that fills us full with the fullness of fellowship. And that's what a church is. We come together We strive towards the same goal. We work together. We struggle together. We cry together. And friends, that's what fellowship is. And of course, that draws us back to the whole big picture of Colossians. The supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Friends, this week, work hard. Work with all of your heart to walk in wisdom. Make sure you work hard to see the fullness of fellowship developed within you. Don't be afraid to get a little bit dirty, to try something and fail. Don't be afraid to open up your heart. Ask for prayer. Confess sin. Call for accountability. But let's remember... All of this is zeroed in and focused in on Jesus Christ because Christ is supreme in all things and he is sufficient. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work that Christ has done and I pray that our hearts would be zeroed in upon what you have done. Lord, draw us closer together in fellowship. Help us to walk in wisdom. Help us to depend on you in prayer. But most of all, Lord, glorify Yourself because of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and because He is sufficient for all that we need. And so, Lord, we trust in You and we pray that You would make this happen. Lord, encourage our hearts today and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.